All right, we are in John 19. We are in, we, had, we ended our time a little bit early last week. Last week we looked at uh, how John in his writing and telling of the crucifixion story to the point where we got last week, he was, he was really wanting us to behold our king, to behold Jesus as king. Pilate is the one who keeps declaring it over and over and over again that Jesus is king of the Jews. And John, through his writing, is wanting us to understand that's right, Jesus is king, not just of the Jews, but king of the world. This morning, we are going to continue to see through the crucifixion story as John is, is writing, he's not just giving us a historical account of what happened, even though he is historically accurate in what he is telling. John cares deeply about the theological tones and themes of the entire letter. Remember, John has written this letter, why? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in his name, by believing in his name, we might, or by believing in him, we might find life, might have life in his name. So we're going to see John continue to share a little bit about the identity of Jesus, even as he's going to the cross. And again, if we can, I just want us to try and do our best. I know we've been in John for a long time, but try and keep some of the big picture themes. John is, God has gifted mankind, and through his spirit, he is doing just amazing work. The more I study John, the more I'm just blown away at the complexity of it. It's both incredibly simple and incredibly complex at the same time. All right, I've talked enough without diving in. We're going to, again, we're going to kind of chunk our way through the morning let me pray for us. Jesus, we come to you and we ask that your word, well, we, we, we actually, we come underneath your word this morning. Um, we're in submission to you. And even though we haven't read it yet, Jesus, we, we acknowledge and are so grateful that you willingly went to the cross on our behalf. And simultaneously, Lord, it feels like there's a, even an invitation for forgiveness for the callous nature in which our hearts might have towards that or the mundaneness, the ho-hummedness of, oh yeah, Jesus went to the cross. You just ask by your grace, not in, not in a gruesome way, but perhaps to your spirit, would you Remind us again, I think, of the psalmist. He says, return unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Would you renew again just our love, our gratitude, our gratefulness for our blessed Jesus. We give you this time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this first section that we're going to go through, um, verses 23 and 24 uh, I'll, I'll be honest, there's a portion of this that was super familiar to me, and then as I studied it more, I was, I was actually blown away once again just in some of the things that I've missed previously going through John. And so uh, this, we'll read 23 and 24, and then we will uh, keep going, but here we go. Uh, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Okay, we'll stop here for a moment. Again, this might be, if we're just, if we're just looking for John to give us a historical account of what happened, this is a weird interjection from John. This isn't... Uh, like, it doesn't change, like, the timing in which Jesus was crucified. It doesn't, it doesn't actually seem as though it has anything to do with the actual crucifixion. It's talking about something else that's happening while the crucifixion is taking place. And what's taking place was incredibly common practice. The people on the cross aren't going to need their clothes anymore. And so it's very common for the Roman soldiers to cast lots to say, hey, what are we going to do with these spoils? But John takes a precious real estate in the middle of the crucifixion to share this tidbit with us. John talks about this tunic. And he gives us special details about it. He says that it was, I'm not a seamstress, but it said that it was seamless. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. Does anybody here weave or Wove, you woveners out there? <laughs> that would be a, a difficult task to do, but what's fascinating is these soldiers, generally what would happen is they, if there were four of them out there, they would just divide everything up equally. So if there was this tunic that you know, wasn't a super special deal, they would honestly, they would just probably cut it up and take the fabric and do what they want with it. But this tunic was so special even to the Roman guards that they're like, whoa, we can't tear this up. What we'll do instead is we'll roll some dice or we'll pull straws or we'll cast lots for it, which we'll see in a minute was another prophecy. And that's the part that I'm very familiar with. But this part about this woven tunic is one that I've overlooked and forgot that what John is, he's so brilliant that he is trying to continually communicate beautiful themes throughout Scripture. And those who are generally reading this passage, his listeners would have an incredibly Jewish background. And this single piece of a woven tunic, do you know it only could be found, there's only one person within the Jewish kind of household of faith that would wear this type of tunic. Any guess? The high priest. It's interesting as we look at the crucifixion story, the many facets that are taking place. You guys all knew that. Maybe I was like, whoa, this is amazing. You're like, oh, it's the high priest. I'm like, dude, that blew my mind. But here we have Jesus on the cross, naked. And we have this symbol which represents the high priesthood. Which what has Jesus been showing us about the high priests? Is it like in good standings? It's the, it's the Jewish mafia, right? It's bad. They're corrupt. And now the Jewish high priest garment, the, 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 the <laughs> holy undergarments, if you will, are now at the feet of the Roman soldiers. And there's something very powerful that's being communicated here. And that's that the high priest is being replaced by Jesus himself. I'm going to read a long quote for you. I think this is helpful. It says, the symbolism 
of the seamless tunic below the cross is clear. The crucified Christ is the Lamb of God, who as the high priest of God offers a one-time sacrifice for the sin of the world. By his own authority as king, like we saw last week, Jesus makes himself the propitiation for the sins of the world, taking the wrath of God upon himself and reconciling the world to God. The sacrificial overtones have been developing throughout the gospel so that the symbol-laden priestly tunic of Jesus lying unworn beneath the cross proclaims that the crucified Jesus has fulfilled and superseded the role of both the Passover lamb and the high priest. The garment need no longer be worn, for like the temple, it has been replaced by the body of Jesus. The reader is guided to see that everything once expected from the high priest, intercession, sacrifice, reconciliation, cleansing, and forgiveness from sin is now accomplished completely through Jesus on the cross. For this reason, Christians come to Jesus as the royal high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. The crucified Christ is the sacrificed priest who by his own blood is the mediator of eternal redemption and a new covenant. That comes from Edward Clink. And I think this is important for us as we're looking at what all is happening on the cross and what, G, what John is trying to help communicate. Last week he's king. This week he's reminding us that he is high priest and the sacrificial lamb who take away the sin of the world. So yes, John is describing what was taking place. He's also referencing Psalm 22, 16 through 18, which locks this in not just with an event that happened, but an event which was foretold, a prophecy of old. And in Psalm 22, which is one of, um, the, uh, one of the most clear messianic psalms, it says this in 22, 16 through 18. He says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. I think these little tidbits aren't little tidbits. They are beautiful acts of the Holy Spirit to write down and help remind us of the cosmic story of God's plan of salvation. Remember, the Bible isn't just 66 individual books. It is one story telling of God's work from creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I don't know about you, but when I begin to see how this beautiful tapestry is woven together, it increases my faith. It blows my mind to see all of these things tied together doing what Jesus will actually share on the road to Emmaus. That actually all of scripture, all of the Old Testament, it's pointing towards him. It's beautiful. 
So John, in his telling so far, he isn't just telling us that Jesus died. He's reminding all who would read that Jesus, the Messiah King of kings, the great high priest, who died once for all, for all humanity, this has been part of God's cosmic plan of salvation from the beginning. We continue on as we look at Jesus with the Marys and John. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, and the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. There's a lot of Marys. Um, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Again, this could feel like, is this imperative to the story of like Jesus dying on the cross necessarily? Not, like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't change, again, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but here John is intentionally, again, bringing us into, he's bringing his narrative lens in. Also, because most commentators agree that John is the disciple in whom Jesus loved, and so here is an eyewitness account of what has taken place. This is the last we'll hear of Jesus' mom, Mary. But it's, it's fascinating. Again, I want us to see kind of the picture that's being painted here. How does he address his mom in this situation? What does he say? Woman. Where has he done this before? John 2. Water into wine. Even in the language in which John is using, he is trying to pull his listeners back to the entire story, right? Water to wine, what happens? The wine runs out. And does Jesus give good wine or bad wine after everybody's a little bit tipsy? The best. He gives them the best wine. And this was a sign of things to come. And here he used the same language. He says, woman, not because he's mad at her, not because he's angry at her. Because John is, is, is trying, and Jesus are trying to link us to the story. And instantly, in the reader's minds, they should be thinking of the, uh, that story. Of wedding at Cana, water to wine, where this is a symbol of the old covenant being replaced with a new one. And in just a few minutes... We're going to see how this ties in a little bit more. On top of that, he also uses the word behold again. Just like Pilate said, behold your king. Behold the son of man. And he says, woman, behold your son. And John, behold your mother. Jesus, as he's getting ready to die, is also beginning to lay down a family ethic for the family of God, how we are called to treat one another. So much so that from this, this actually is going to impact, this is, this is how the church relationship between male and female, between people who are not related, what happens when Jesus brings you together as you come into the family of God, a place where you can be cared for, even if you're not actually related, because Jesus actually had a brother, his name's James, he actually was a big deal in the church. Like, it should have been James, right? 
James, take care of your mom. So even in this moment, Jesus, I think, is beginning to lay down an ethic for what community and caring for one another will look like. And come Acts 2, community and caring for one another through the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be something that turns the world upside down. And to this day, turns the world upside down when we care for one another the way that Jesus calls us to. So now we go on. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, so if, if John and Jesus are trying to anchor us back into perhaps chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, what's some of the comparison here that we, is there, like here we have Jesus, he's, he's thirsty. And again, we've got that word that, again, is going to pop up markers for all of the listeners. But in, in the second chapter of John's letter, here he gives the absolute best wine. Again, it's just another picture that is so sad. He gives the best wine when it didn't matter what type of wine he would give. And here he is at the end of his life. And what does he get? The gross, soggy, nasty, leftover wine. The sour stuff. Again, there's just some comparisons here that are going on that are, that are interesting. But Jesus is thirsty. This would be kind of devastating. Uh, perhaps to hear him say this. Because he's had a few interactions as he's talked about water and as he's talked about people who are thirsty, right? He said he was thirsty before with the woman at the well. But then he tells the woman, hey, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink of water. For I will provide a source of life that will never end. Or in John 7, when he says, if anybody is thirsty, let them come to me and drink from within their soul will pour forth springs of living water. And yet now that Jesus is now on the cross and he's saying, I thirst. How can the one who gives this water, how can he be the one that's actually thirsty? And John is intent all throughout the letter to remind us of the gospel. Of the reality that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And here in this moment as Jesus thirsts, you also might be thinking of some of the other gospel accounts that say, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus, when he was tempted... He's living off of the word of God. He's living off of this relationship with God. And now in this moment, as he's thirsting, what John is trying to identify, he is now identifying with all humanity fully. I thirst. 
I feel I am dying. There's something that feels so wrong about Jesus saying he thirsts. And it's because there is and there isn't. Jesus, who is God and is man, he's not supposed to die, right? He doesn't deserve to die, yet Jesus willingly lays down his own life. Why? Because of the great love that he has for his chief creation. Even those who are casting lots for his very clothing. And then he offers up his last phrase. It is finished. Again, this is why the moment where Jesus is declaring that he's thirsty and now he's about to declare that it's finished. This is, this, again, this, this, this picture of him taking upon himself the sins of humanity and also the wrath of God. And this is where we don't know what's happened. I'll just bring you into it. I probably shouldn't. But like, there are some aspects of like the Trinity that are very confusing. And this is one of those moments. What happens to the Trinity in this moment on the cross as Jesus says, I thirst. And as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I do not believe that Jesus is just telling us things like for our benefit. Jesus is telling us what his experience was like. And Jesus didn't sort of die in our place. He fully died in our place and took upon himself the wrath in which we deserved. I do not think any of us fully understand what took place in the Godhead as Jesus declares it is finished and breathes his last breath. I don't know. Just so you know, I'm not giving you an answer. Scripture leaves us in a place of tension. And if I did, you would probably call me a heretic. But when Jesus says it is finished, this is like a legal phrase. Um, This is like if you had a debtor or if you were indebted to somebody and you paid off that bill, the debtor would say, it is finished. That is, that is the legal standing. It is finished. Well, what is finished? What do you guys think? When Jesus says, it is finished, what is he saying? What's finished? What do you think? Huh? His redemptive work. Yeah, the, go ahead. Yeah, the, debt, the debt's paid. Yeah, the, the, there, this, is, this could be quite large, but it is finished. The, the plan that God, the salvific plan that God had from the beginning of the world of making it possible for shalom to once again exist between his creation and himself without the need of a high priest, it is now finished. All the work that is needed in order for man to be made right with God It is now finished. Why? Because Jesus was the pure spotless lamb who died for the sins of the world. His blood is shed, is poured out, as we'll see in a moment, in order that we might be forgiven. It is finished. The laying down his life 
for even his enemies. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It is finished. Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world. So John's not done 31 through 37. We got to keep moving. Since the day was, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers uh, came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he had, was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Okay, in this section, the most, so I'll just give you the, the big picture piece to this is that John is making sure to communicate. He's already thinking about those generations later who potentially would say, well, did Jesus actually die? Or did this really happen? This just sounds like a story. And you know what? He's right, because it does sound wild that we believe that somebody rose from the dead. And so John goes through great length saying, I'm an eyewitness. There's all these other people who are eyewitnesses. Jesus was dead, dead. He was dead. Like, no doubt about it. He was dead. He wasn't a phantom. He didn't, he didn't like just appear in pixel form. No, he died on the cross. And there's more to it than that. He brings us into the Sabbath story. Remember the time of Passover. This is again Jesus bringing us into the Lamb of God who take away the sin of the world. The sacrifices are being replaced by the chief sacrifice in Jesus. Old Testament requires that not a bone of the lamb be broken. And John goes through great detail to remind them that, hey, these other guys hanging on each side of them, their legs were broken. Most crucifixions that you see, legs are broken. I don't want to get too gruesome, but crucifixions can take a really long time. Multiple days often. And so if they're to hasten it, and Romans were good at being brutal, they would come alongside and they would break the legs, and the legs would eventually hasten the suffocation. And the Jews, because they care about their festivals more than they care about their Messiah, they were like, hey, we got to get to this Passover meal thing, so we can't leave these bodies up here. So Pilate, let's ask you to do us another solid. Go, go break their legs so that we can make sure to put them in the ground. So again, you can read that the the soldiers are, they're, they're shocked. They're shocked. And as they come to Jesus and see that he's, he's actually already dead. You know that Jesus was on the cross for about six hours. That would have been a very quick, I mean, that sounds just agonizing to us, but in terms of normal crucifixion, that was pretty quick. And so, again, they normally would come and break the legs. They come to Jesus Looks like he's already dead. The soldiers got to double check and make sure because it's his responsibility to make sure that he's dead, dead. And so he takes a spear and he puts it in his side. And out comes blood and water. And 
I'm not uh, a doctor, but apparently that, that sort of substance coming out is, is one in which uh, we could spiritualize it, which there are some connotations there, but this is, again, John's main point is Jesus is dead, dead. Like, that's the main thing he's trying to communicate here. And in also doing it, he's tying in together rest other portions of Scripture. Um, okay. As that blood is shed, again, this is, this is bringing us back to Jesus being the sacrifice. We, get, we still have allusions of John 2 with the water to wine. A new covenant is being introduced. We'll talk more about that next week as we get to the resurrection. But Jesus is dead, dead. The promised one. And John saying, hey, I have borne witness to us. This is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. Wants to make sure that we understand that. The last section, I apologize, I'm moving quickly. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. You guys notice this? 75 pounds. People lost their minds when Mary gave about five. 75 pounds in weight. That is what a king is buried in. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as in the burial customs of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. In this section, we're introduced to a new character, Joseph of Arimathea, which we don't know a ton about outside of that he was owner of this tomb. John, again, is going through important depths because John cares about the generations who will believe after. John has not the first generation in mind of believers here. He has the generations and generations and generations. So he is trying to help establish credibility like Peter, excuse me, like Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Dude, we're all to be pitied. And so in order for that to be a big deal, it also has to be clear that Jesus actually died and that he actually was put into a tomb. So he goes at great length to do that. And that's what he does by bringing in Joseph of Arimathea. Um, but the one that I, I just want to make sure I don't want us to skip past is we get, a, we, we get a circle back with Nicodemus. Any of you guys love, like I'm such a character development guy, like I love that we get Nicodemus here. Jimmy, your prayer earlier, I was like, his story of being one in process with Jesus is a, a really beautiful one, and I think so important for so many in our time right here. As he comes and he's skeptical, he's heard some stuff about Jesus, he doesn't know what to think about him. So he comes and he, he approaches him first at night in John 3. And then we see a little blip of him in, in John 7, and he kind of gets chastised by his buddies. And then here, while it is still light, it's not dark anymore, it's about to get dark, he comes with everything to lose, his reputation, all of it, to do what he can for this 
dead king of his. Worship team, you guys can come on up. We're going to spend some more time on Friday talking through these scenes. But I would just want us to get a glimpse of what John is doing here. Yes, he's giving us a historical understanding that a man named Jesus died on the cross. But he's doing so much more than that. He's sharing how Jesus went to the cross as part of his assignment as the Lamb of God, high priest, who takes away the sins of the world. He's sharing that on the cross where Jesus is slain, Jesus dies in our place in order that we might be made right with him. In order that just like Nicodemus, we could be born again. And all of this is possible. Forgiveness of sins, being made right with God is only possible because Jesus truly did die on the cross. And because he truly finished the work necessary. And Hebrews 12.2 tells us it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus willingly, on purpose, died for you, for me, for us, for the world. Why? Yes, he wants to be obedient to the Father. But you also know what? He knew what the result would be. (laughs) He knew that he would rise. Why does he know this? Because he knows the Father. And that those who believe in him, they would be united with him to life everlasting. Friends, Jesus cries out, it is finished. And as he does, he's not joking. He's not just saying something to like let everybody know that now he's finally dying. When Jesus cries out, it is finished, the, he tears down the wall of hostility between us and God and literally torn down the veil replaced the old system with a new one. Again, there's so much within all of John that we could go through here. But when he said it is finished, he now made it possible for all the world to be in relationship with the Father, just like he prayed in John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. 